So um, for those of you that don't know me, my name's Jeremy, otherwise known as Jezza DJ, one of the elders here at Real Life Church, um, married to Becky, and I have three children, Joel, Caitlin, and Isaac, and Joel and Caitlin are no longer children. They are now um, junior members of staff in the Douglas Jones household who need to be micromanaged. And um, Isaac is just finished his first year in secondary school and has just done his first new day. So he's, he's well and truly inducted into the youth at Real Life Church, and um, I'm looking forward to when he's kind of come down off of the week, hearing a little bit more about what, what happened for him. But it sounds like you guys had a great time at New Day. Yeah. A lot of hard work, a lot of late nights, pretty tired, but God was faithful, God spoke to you, that's good, that's good, because I had a sucky week. <laughs> I was left at home all by myself, and to be fair, I don't want you to feel sorry for me, but it was a weird week for me. It was a strange week. I, I didn't feel very good. I didn't feel myself. I felt a bit overwhelmed. And I think there's a lot of things going on that were, were con or are contributing to that. But there were a number of evenings when I was sitting um, after work feeling not myself, that I'd rather be hiding in a cave than preparing for this morning. And uh, I know a, a lot of us sometimes feel like that. We, we have days where we're like, everything's just too much. I don't think I can do it. I don't think I can hear God with what's going on in my heart and my mind. And um, that was me this week. And that's still me. And I think next week will be the same. It kind of feels like, oh, I've got a holiday coming on the 16th of August, but it's come a few weeks late. And there's just too much. But I can rejoice in that place as a Christian because I know that there are many people that have followed God that have felt exactly the same and God has been faithful to carry them through that. And he has been faithful to, the, to equip them with what they need as well as the strength required to do what they call to do regardless of how they feel, regardless of what's going in their hearts or going on in their minds. And so I stand here today prepared to deliver God's word to you, not because of my own strength or my own clever ideas, but because of his faithfulness to his own word and his own good news and his willingness to bring it to his people so that they can grow in their relationship with him. So as I preach, don't listen to our oh, poor old G Jeremy that had a, had a tough week. Listen to the words of God and let the Holy Spirit bring them to life and let them rest in your heart so that they will bring change. There's three reasons why I share that little story with you. It's not really related to the sermon, but it's true. And it's really important for us to be honest and open with each other. And I think sometimes uh, we, we tend to hold back because we maybe think that we're gonna be a burden, we, we need to carry on doing our own thing, we need to be strong and contribute. But Sometimes we need to be honest with each other as well and open about what's going on. Secondly, I say it because leaders are human. And I know that we, we, have, we hold leaders to a higher standard, which is good and right, but we also think 
that we hold them to our highest standard and that life is better for them in some way, that they don't struggle with the same things that the rest of us struggle with. But leaders do, and we probably get what's going on in, in the lives of, of the people that we help to lead. And as I said, none of us are perfectly strong, but God always is. He never fails. Okay, on to the word then. Just a quick summary where we were last week. We were looking at the sham trial, two trials in fact, the sham trial of Jesus in the, the house of the high priest and the, at the same time the awkward unofficial trial of Peter in the courtyard. And what we had there was Jesus who was innocent, being falsely tried and, and badly tried, being found guilty, and Peter in the courtyard who was accused of being a follower of Jesus, and he was guilty, but he was guilty of being a false witness. He was guilty of being the same as the false witnesses that were bringing false charges against Jesus. He was lying about his relationship to Jesus, and... Um, and found guilty of that. But the good news is that is not where Peter's story ended. Isn't that where we ended last week? The good news is that he goes on to become a true witness. He goes on to become one who testifies boldly for Jesus and declares the gospel and becomes embedded into the foundations of Christ's bride, which is the church. So now, after hearing that good news in the middle of a, a massive trial, a place of great difficulty and torment for Peter and for Jesus, we move on to the next event in the legal proceedings of Jesus' trial. He's been found guilty of blasphemy, unjustly, but he has been found guilty of blasphemy. But the high priest cannot enforce or authorize the death sentence. That has to come from the ruling authority in the land, which is Rome. And so we go on to Pilate. And Stuart's going to help me by um, reading our text for today. And then I'm going to continue. Thanks, Stuart. And as soon as it was morning... The chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. 
And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you that your word is inspired, that Holy Spirit, you you inspired the writers to put this down so that we, your church, would know your will, that we would have a, a record of what you went through, that we would understand who you are fully, and Lord, that we would understand fully who we are and how we benefit from our relationship with you. Holy Spirit, I pray that these words come to life as we spend some time this morning just looking at this passage more deeply. In Jesus' name, amen. Right. This, and I'm sure you're all going to debate this, but let's be honest, this must be one of the wickedest, most unjust moments in human history. But I get a sense that when we read it and we read other accounts of it, of the passion in the Gospels, we don't respond with the emotional weight that the event warrants. Perhaps they are distant. Perhaps we've, been, um, we've read the story too many times. Maybe we've been desensitized by our overwhelming media. But I want us to see this event. And as we see this event, I want us to, to feel rightly as we explore God's plan and understand the evil performed by the Jews, by the Romans, by the crowd. And importantly, that we, we understand our complicity in these actions. Because it's only, it's only then that we will be able to respond rightly to what Christ accomplishes for us through these actions. It's only then that we can respond rightly to what Christ does and accomplishes even through this unbearable shame. And only then can we truly delight in the good news of the cross. And when we, we look at these accounts of the actual um, trials, they, they seem to be quite contained in terms of the, the physical brutality of what was going on to Jesus. We hear about a beating, here we hear about the scourging, but there is a strong emphasis on the shame. There is a strong emphasis on the fact that, that Jesus is belittled and they do everything in their power to bring him to a place where he is shamed publicly. You'll remember that when he was betrayed, he didn't need to be bound up. He didn't need many um, military personnel to escort him off. He went willingly. He was a man of peace. 
And yet the first thing we read in this section is that after the chief priest called the council of the religious leaders, they bound Jesus. They bound him up as though he was going to run? No, because they wanted to shame him. They bound him up and they walked him through the streets to Pilate's house in front of everyone. It's all about the shame that he had to endure. But let me pull back a little bit. The main point, the main point of this, this extract is not is not Pilate's weak, weak character. I think we, we do spend a lot of time, especially in Sunday school, learning about Pilate. It's not really about his weak character. It's not really about the, the fickleness of popular sentiment. It's not really about the horror of people demanding a torturous death for, a, for an innocent person. It's not even the point that king of the Jews was a, a threat to Rome and an open challenge to Caesar. All of that's in there, but that's not really the point. The main point of this, this passage is that a guilty man, a guilty man was set free and an innocent man was punished in his place. Barabbas, a murderous and well-known criminal, was freed by God's people. And God's own son was condemned to death by the Gentiles. That is what we're going to look at today. And as we look at it, my prayer is that your hearts will be stirred. That you will feel rightly at the injustice of all of that. And at the same time, you'll marvel at the goodness of God. And you'll marvel at his sovereignty as he works out his plan using Pilate, using Barabbas, using the high priest and the crowd. Those that have only evil in their hearts and are, are set against his will are unwittingly playing out God's plan for redemption of his people. But first, Pilate, let's do Sunday school. So who was Pontius Pilate? He was what, what's called a prefect. He served as the, the Roman governor in Judea, and history tells us it was approximately from 26 AD to 36 AD, so about 10 to 11 years that he was governor in Judea. That might not sound very long, but that was very long for a governor in Judea. Normally, they would only be there a few years, and you may think, well, that means that Pontius Pilate was very successful. He was doing well, so they kept him there. No, 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 no. Being um, the governor of Judea was a junior position. It was like your starting, your starting position in your career. And most others had found ways of being promoted way quicker than Pontius Pilate. He managed to stay there for 11 years, not because he was doing a good job, but because he was doing a rubbish job. Um, he was appointed by the Roman Emperor Tiberius. And during his, his rule, he faced significant challenges during, during it. He, he, he had to deal with religious, cultural, and political tensions. There were a number of attempts at insurrection. He was known in character for his harsh and insensitive rule, his insensitivity to Jewish customs. He often clashed 
with the Jews around their customs and beliefs, and he did some really, really crazy things. It's said that the Jews even despised the water that was brought to Jerusalem by the aqueduct that Pontius Pilate built. Why? Because Pontius Pilate funded those public works by confiscating the money from the temple. So they, they despised the water that they drank because it came through sacrilege and disrespect of Jewish customs. Um, he also was, was known for, for bringing in banners with the, the face of Caesar into the temple in Jerusalem, which was seen as blasphemy by the Jews because you shall ha have no graven image, no gods before me, and there was a picture of Caesar emblazoned on banners in the temple. Despite that, Judea was one place in the Roman kingdom where they didn't have to oblige to emperor worship. So they did allow the Jews to continue worshiping in their custom, and they did, they did um, endure that. But yeah, not the best person and not the best ruler. And the reason I bring all of that up is because I just wanted to make it clear that he was not remarkable in any way, that his rule in Judea was marked with poor performance, and also to say that, that Pilate wasn't particularly partial to the Jewish people. And that's important for this passage. He wasn't partial to them. So his behavior in this passage is probably not to be confused with either cowardice or partiality. He was cruel, he was harsh, and he couldn't care less about Jewish customs. His behavior is more likely explained by pragmatism. Now, that's a word I hear all the time these days. You've got to be pragmatic. I'm, and and it's, it's, it's lauded as a good word. Pragmatism is terrible. It's a terrible word. Go and look up what pragmatism actually means. It means you, do, you make decisions based on what is good for you at the time, basically. What, what is most most expedient rather than using any kind of compass of values or morals to guide your decisions. Pragmatism is not great. So his behavior was more likely explained by pragmatism or political expedience. Basically, another uprising, another insurrection would not bode well for his political future. And so he's going to do what he can to keep the masses calm. Either way, it's ironic, isn't it? It's ironic that this whole, and, and this whole passage is peppered with irony, but it's, it's so ironic that a, a third-rate Roman politician that couldn't be promoted gets to decide whether the king of kings lives or dies. And it, as I say, it's got nothing to do with his character, it's all about his position. He's the ruling authority of Rome in the area at that time, and so they needed him to make the decision. And when I was talking about Jesus being bound up, that verse reflects Isaiah's messianic prophecy. It's in Isaiah 53, and it indicates that Messiah had to be handed over to the Gentiles to be executed. So as we learn about Pilate and we see the high priests doing what they have to do, taking Jesus to the Roman rule to, to get the sentence, we also see the outworking of prophecy. We see the outworking of God's plan in their actions, unwittingly and unknown to them. 
So he was handed over to a Gentile ruler who was responsible for deciding his sentence. And there's this phrase that we read that says, delivered him over, which refers to what happens to a scapegoat. Now, I don't know if you know how a scapegoat works, but essentially what would happen is, is you would have a goat and the priest would symbolically lay the sins of God's people, the sins of the camp, on the scapegoat's back. And then they'd send the scapegoat out of the camp, out into the wilderness, away from God's presence, away from God's people, to die in the wilderness as a replacement for the death, for the punishment that was um, meant for the people of God. Outside of the camp, outside of God's presence, in the land of the Gentiles. So that's where Jesus is moving in the same way as the scapegoat. And as I say, for Pilate, this whole event was not about justice or truth. It was not an opportunity for him to show what a man of integrity he was or how honorable it, he was. It was about expedience. He just couldn't afford another uprising. And Jesus' life seemed a small price to pay <clears throat> for peace and potential political promotion. But in the, in the midst of this, this piece, there's a, there's a very short account of the conversation between, um, between Jesus and Pilate in Mark. It's really short. It's literally, um, this is what you're accused of. Jesus says, yep, you say so. There's actually a lot of conversation between that that is recorded in, in the other Gospels, and we're going to look at an extract of that in John in a little bit. But in that conversation, Pilate has a a very sober moment with Jesus. And he knows afterward that Jesus poses no threat to Rome. And he also knows that Jesus has committed no crime and that the only reason that the high priests have delivered him up is out of envy. But still, that is of no consequence. Justice and truth are secondary. The primary objective that steers the mind of Pilate is, is political survival. Now we see this all the time these days, don't we? Truth seems to be a, a relatively unimportant these days. Politicians massage the stats to, to motivate their own agendas and to make short-term decisions to suit their short-term careers. Media outlets manipulate facts to ensure more clicks. How many times have you clicked on a headline and realized that the article has nothing to do with what they put on that headline? They sensationalize the most innocuous of events. I mean, how many times are we gonna have the hottest summer or the coldest winter, and when are we gonna be snowed in again? I know I'm being facetious. There's, there's more serious things that they, they mess around with. But the most innocuous of events, they sensationalize them. They turn them into the biggest deal. They misquote public figures intentionally to cast them in the worst light. Why? Because it sells. Who cares about the truth? What I care about is money. I care about advertising revenue. I care about clicks. I care about popularity, I care about recognition, I care about public 
opinion. Truth is secondary. People everywhere these days are living out their truth. Their truth. What does that even mean? Whatever I feel is truth, that's confusing. They create their own views based on opinions, based on feelings and whatever else takes their fancy. And when I talk about people out there, I'm talking about you and me as well. We all do it. We determine our truth, we determine our reality based on the way we feel at the end of the day. Based on something we heard from a source that we can't verify because it seems popular. Not even science is respected as the final word on anything these days. And that was meant to be the thing that delivered us from religion. Absolute truth comes through exploration of the physical world and determining the natural laws. Unless, of course, it butts up against the way I feel about things, then it goes to the side and I do what I think is right. Even the church. The church seems to be unconcerned with truth. We hear voices in the church saying things like, doctrine is divisive. We need to focus on harmony and good relationships. Or we need to focus on our spiritual relationship with Jesus. It's more important than our knowledge of the Bible. What does that even mean? How do you even know? How do you know what a good relationship is? Or how do you know what spirit you're, you're talking to? if you don't have a grasp of truth. But truth, truth was important to Jesus. In fact, it comes up in this conversation in John with Pilate. So you can make a note of it. We're not gonna turn there. It's not gonna go up on the screen, but it's John 18, verse 36 38. I'll read it to you. So Pilate asks, are you a king? And Jesus answered, my kingdom, yes, I'm a king. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. First off, and very quickly, this account helps us to understand why Pilate was not too concerned about the claim of kingship. To give you an idea, 
Romans were really, really, really serious about anybody else that claimed to be a king. They would be killed very quickly. There was no tolerance given to anybody that was raising their head up above and against Caesar. But Jesus' acknowledgement that he is a king, but not the type of king that, that Pilate is used to, and in a sense, Jesus' kingdom comes across as no threat to Rome. This is not a kingdom of this world, and the followers have not come and fought to set Jesus free, so therefore it seems that there is no threat to Rome. So that is not a problem for Pilate. Jesus could have gone on, and he could have explained that actually his kingdom rules over all other kingdoms, and that he is the king of all worldly kings, but he didn't. What he did do, what he did go on to say, is to explain the reason for his coming, his mission. And I know that we, there are many ways that we can explain his mission, and there are many ways that he explains his mission, but here, in his words, he says that the reason that he came is to bear witness to the truth. And those who are of the truth hear his voice. Church, Jesus says that his people, the people that hear his voice are people of truth. They care about truth. They want to understand rightly who God is and who Jesus Christ is and who the Holy Spirit is and how we came to be on this planet and why things don't work and how come we even have an awareness that things are broken and don't work? And what does redemption of all of creation and all of eternity look like? What are we to do in this day and age before his return? We are a people of truth, not just relative experience or blase attitudes, happily bumbling through life until we die and go to heaven maybe. Our calling is to hear his voice and to seek out truth. And Pilate's response to him is just more irony, isn't it? I mean, in the face of the one who is truth, who is the embodiment of an, ob an objective truth, beyond the influence of social and personal preferences, he says, what is truth? And that may sound like he is being cynical, asking a, a very common philosophical question, but I think this is a very sobering moment for Pilate. This is a man who's lived his life making decisions based solely on what is most beneficial for himself. And he's for once confronted with the sober reality that truth would find him severely lacking. Sadly, the moment doesn't last for Pilate. 
and he returns to his pragmatism. He survives his survival instinct and his old way of political expedience, and he capitulates to the will of the crowd, a decision that flies in the, faith, the face of truth and justice. And so we meet Barabbas, Pilate, in a, a last-ditch effort to avoid crucifying Jesus, because he knows he's innocent, and he knows that he's been brought to him out of envy. He uses an annual tradition of his. The, the people call out for him to do what he normally does for them and set a prisoner free, and he goes, he has an opportunity. He has an opportunity for me to get out of this without having to do the right thing. And so he offers the people what seems a no-brainer choice. He thinks of Barabbas, an infamous murderer, an insurrectionist, someone who is not popular with Rome and is seemingly not popular with the Jewish people either. And he says to them, so who would you choose, Barabbas or Jesus? Would you rather choose someone who is innocent and not likely to be much trouble to society or a known murderer, an insurrectionist, a rabble-rouser and a trouble-causer who is probably going to end up killing more people and ending up back in prison? And the people, incited by the religious leaders, choose Barabbas. And all the more horrifying... When Pilate says, okay, fine, Barabbas it is, then what do I do with the one you call king of the Jews? They shout out, crucify him! Crucify him! What should I do with this innocent Jesus? Crucify him. What has he done? No response. Other than crucify him, I'm not even gonna tell you what he's done. We want him dead. That should fill you with disgust. That should fill you with sadness and anger and repulsion. It should. Do you know that Barabbas is this man's last name? Do you know that his first name was Jesus? Another Jesus. And the irony doesn't end there. Barabbas, literally translated, means son of the father. The crowd is choosing another Jesus, son of the father, over the true Jesus, king of kings. So that's what Pilate does. He frees Barabbas, and he hands Jesus over to be scourged and crucified. Now, this, being scourged is, um, you may know the phrase, the cat and nine tails. Basically, means you're, you're tied to a pole, and a Roman centurion will have a, a big whip with strands, multiple strands, with pieces of bone and pieces of metal tied to the end of it. And they will whip you cross your back, and those little pieces of bone and metal will grab into your flesh, and as they pull away, it'll pull your flesh away. It'll leave your bones and your entrails exposed. And that's just 
appetizers. That's just the first course. And the reason they did it for victims of crucifixion was to shorten the crucifixion. It was to reduce the potential lifespan, the, the time it would take for someone to die on a cross. Because crucifixion was so terrible, so scourging, as horrible as it was, was in a, a, a perverse way uh, an act of mercy. It delivers him over to be scourged and to be crucified. And this is a picture of what Jesus did for all of us on the cross. You see, we, we read about a, a savage and, and fickle crowd. We read about an evil, murderous prisoner. We read about a, a ruler who makes selfish decisions and the religious leaders who were desperate to hold on to power and envious of Jesus. But they are us. We are the guilty. We are the ones with dark hearts that were and are set against God and determined to fashion our own truth, our own God in our own image, a different Jesus, Son of the Father, one who was less powerful than the real deal, one who was perhaps more accommodating, more like us, a little less clear, a little less exclusive, a little more flawed and easier to relate to, a more human Jesus. We are the ones who want to choose our own destiny and hate the idea that there is some ultimate authority who has command and control over our lives. And Jesus Jesus takes on our punishment. You see, we were found guilty. It's not like we're running away scot-free and no one's caught us. We've been found guilty. We are apprehended. We have been sitting in jail, waiting our punishment. We have been condemned to death, and it is a worthy punishment for all of the evil that we have committed. But Jesus steps in, and Jesus pays the price on our behalf. That's what this is all about, Barabbas and Jesus exchanging places, a foreshadowing of what he would do for all of his people on the cross. He died our death so that we could live his life. And you know what that means? It means that we get to walk in the presence of God without any shame, with our head held high, knowing his approval and his love. Not because we are the, just the best people, but because he is the best God. 
That's what I mean when I, I say, and I know I say it often, God does not love us because of who we are. God loves us despite who we are. This is a love that doesn't excuse our sinfulness. This isn't the kind of love that you see from a weak parent that, that, that just pretends there are no consequences to the poor behavior of their children. It doesn't ignore it. It doesn't ignore wrongdoing. It deals with it. It deals with it in the most final sense, once and for all, and it renders us without sin and without shame. Now, that is, that is scandalous. That is exceedingly gracious. That is more than any of us deserve, and that should be a, a constant source of, of joy and, and gratitude to our hearts. That's the great response to what was a very heavy session. <laughs> but it's the right response. You need to feel the gravity. It's not enough for us to go, yeah, it's all good. Jesus died for me because he loves me. No. He died for you despite who you are. And he loves you all the same. And because of that, we get to live an amazing life. And I've got, what do we do with that? I mean, the big thing is this, don't flipping waste it. Come on, church. Look at what he's done for you. Now go out and do the same. Love him and love people and bear witness to the truth. But to break it down, seek out the real Jesus, not some other one. The Savior who's willing to take your place on the cross, not the one of popular opinion, not the one of religious tradition, not the one you hear on your podcasts or you hear some politician talking about or even some, um, some preacher, the one that's revealed in the Word of God and is made the Word of God that is made alive by the Holy Spirit, that Jesus. Go and seek Him out. Resist the temptation to modify or selectively choose which of his teachings are more comfortable for you? Take them all on board, even the ones that make you shrink away or feel uncomfortable, and challenge yourself. If this makes me feel awkward, what do I need to learn and how do I need to change? And embrace Jesus in his entirety. Embrace his grace. Embrace his love. And embrace his lordship over your lives. Worship team, you want to come up? I'm going to wrap up. Guys, if we can stand. I've got a couple of things I'd like us to do. Number one, and most of us have done this at least once, but we need to do it every day. We need to account for ourselves and consider our salvation. Let us respond by accepting Jesus as our Savior and Lord. The one that stands in our place and delivers us from our punishment and the one who has lordship and authority over our lives. Let us go out 
from here being witnesses to the truth, to the gospel, by the way, that we live our daily lives. Don't waste what Jesus has accomplished for you. And let's spend a bit of time now toward the end of the, the service reflecting on, on what Jesus has done for us, his sacrificial love, and giving him thanks for that and walking away from this place with a heart of gratefulness, a heart of gratitude that will empower us going out and not wasting our lives. So Lord, I wanna thank you for your word. I wanna thank you for the example set in this trial where so many willful, evil people set themselves against you and your plan. But in so doing, simply served to fulfill your plan. Lord, I wanna thank you that in the, in the midst of injustice and evil, we can see the God of all things working out his unfrustrated plan for, for, for himself and for his people. And Lord, we just wanna thank you for that. Lord, we ask that, that as, we, as we close out the Sunday morning, Holy Spirit, that you will, you will set our hearts ablaze again, that you would cause us to be a, a people that are empowered by the joy of this divine substitution and Lord, that we would be the same, that we would go out, that we would bear witness to the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.